Good morning, everyone. It's uh, 8.04 uh, a.m., uh, time to begin our, our grand rounds. Um, and um, it, it's great to be back. I was uh, last last week. I was in China, so I'm still recovering from the jet lag. So it's 8:04 p.m. for me in some way. It's probably the first time I give grand rounds at 8:04 p.m. or open grand rounds. This is a very special one. Uh, uh, we have a, a, a dear colleague who's going to be giving grand rounds. Uh, uh, Dr. Dorkin is going to introduce him. But I just uh, uh, I, I did want to uh, recognize Gary for uh, for the, the number of years that he's he's worked uh, at Connecticut Children's. Uh, and, and made an impact in so many ways in the, in the lives of children, uh, not only here uh, through his clinical care, but also through his national advocacy on behalf of children. Um, I think he saved uh, you know, thousands of lives through that, through that work. And, and, uh, and what's remarkable about him is that uh, he, he's an unbelievable human being, very nice. He's a, uh, he's a great musician, and it's always great to see him at our uh, most, a lot of our events. Uh, and um, a couple of months ago, I was reading uh, you know, that famous journal, the, the Hartford Magazine. Uh, and, uh, and I was going through the pages, and sure enough, there was Gary uh, uh, in a, uh, with his uh, traditional hat um, and uh, playing the drums in a beautiful picture. And what they were highlighting is people that, that in addition to their work, they actually do something else in life which is meaningful. And, and Gary is somebody who certainly does that. So uh, I'll, I'll stop there so that Paul can have uh, his, the usual time to, to recognize him, Paul. Thanks, Juan. Good morning, everyone. I uh, was uh, thinking of that Hartford Magazine photo, and my intent was to display it. My travel, far less exotic than Juan's, uh, did not afford me the opportunity to find it, but it is worth looking up. Just Google them, and I'm sure it will pop up. So my job this morning is really pretty easy. Uh, uh, first of all, Juan already has introduced the speaker, so I can just sit down. And secondly, both the topic this morning and the speaker should need very little introduction based on their longevity. Our Injury Prevention Center uh, next year will be celebrating its 30th anniversary, three decades of really profoundly important work in advancing research, public policy, uh, training and education and uh, program delivery to make a measurable impact on the health and safety of children and youth. So that in and by itself is worthy of our celebration and our familiarity. Gary exceeds the Injury Prevention Center with respect to his duration and longevity. It's a bit startling 
to realize that actually Gary arrived in Hartford four decades ago, literally four decades plus about six months uh, to deliver, begin delivering care to the children of Hartford. And probably only Leon and Lenny, as I look out at them, will remember that Gary's initial clinical activities were, at, were on the pediatric unit of the Mount Sinai Hospital. Uh, things have indeed changed over four decades. And uh, Gary has uh, provided leadership to the Injury Prevention Center since its inception, originally as associate director and as director of the center since 1998. I just want to call out three aspects of Gary's leadership um, and then invite him to the podium because I know that he has something like 250 slides to share with you. So beware, it will be rapid fire. Um, first is Gary's leadership with his colleagues of the Injury Prevention Center. And obviously the center was formed prior to the uh, formation of Connecticut Children's. It was based at Hartford Hospital in the Department of Pediatrics and well, well, well before the founding of the Office for Community Child Health. For us, it's really been a signature program because of its broad impact. And we thank Gary and his colleagues for that. Secondly, Gary has long been a champion for his advanced practitioner colleagues and his advocacy was recognized most recently by his appointment to the Connecticut Children's Specialty Group Board, where he represents an extremely important constituency among our clinical providers. And third, Gary has been a champion for the importance of uh, academic development and advancement. In fact, I'm very proud of the fact that during my prior tenure as chair, Gary was the first and I believe the only, as I look at Juan, uh, faculty member to be promoted to senior rank associate professor without a terminal doctorate degree of either MD or PhD. Gary's terminal degree is a master's in public health. Not only has Gary recognized the benefits of academic advancement for himself, but he has a generously uh, supported his colleagues and with Juan's encouragement, we now have a number of staff of the Office for Community Child Health who are in the process of uh, securing academic appointments and engaging in academic advancement. So Gary's legacy is well secure. Uh, this morning is gonna give us a general update on recent advances um, that have been addressed through the work of the Injury Prevention Center. Gary. Well, thank you, Paul, for that very kind and generous introduction. Here's my title. And I have no conflicts or disclosures, but of course, many, many thanks to, to many people in this audience who have supported me personally and supported the Injury Prevention Center. What I'd like to do over the next 
45 minutes or so is give you an overview of what's happened in our field in the last 20 or 30 years. I'll be using national data from the Centers for Disease Control. I will point out our state data with each problem. And what I've done here is group the injury problems into three broad categories. Injuries and violence issues that are getting better, those where we see no change, and those that are getting worse. In the category of issues getting better, we now have infrastructure to support our work, and I'll explain that in a few minutes. Things are getting better in the roadway for people in cars as motor vehicle occupants. Drunk driving deaths are down. Pedestrian and bicycle deaths are down over the 20 or 30 years with a little asterisk there because in the last year or so, we've seen an uptick, a measurable uptick, unfortunately, in, in bicycle and pedestrian injuries. We've made progress in falls and drowning. We are still stymied by the huge problem of child maltreatment and intimate partner violence. And funding for our field is poultry. It's low, and it needs to get better. There are some injury problems that have gotten significantly worse, including infant suffocation, motorcycle injuries, opioid overdoses, suicide, firearm, and climate change. As Dr. Dworkin mentioned, I will have a lot of slides, so I encourage you to put your helmet on and fix your goggles and fasten your seatbelt. So here we go. I will also draw on the knowledge from my good friend David Hemingway, who, was director, who is director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center, and he recently published an article entitled Building the Injury Field in North America, the Perspective of Some of the Pioneers. The pioneers were people, leaders in our field, who distinguished themselves with service and contributions to science. And I was fortunate enough to be considered one of these pioneers. And we were asked, what are the major accomplishments in our field in the last 20 or 30 years? And what are some of the disappointments? <laughs> so here are some of the major accomplishments. We have created institutions and systems needed for progress. The institutions include the National Injury Control Research Center at the CDC. That was formed in 1989. And in 1990, my colleague and friend and mentor, Dr. Banco, had the vision of establishing an injury center here, and we did so in 1990. And then in 2006, the American College of Surgeons established that all level one trauma centers, pediatric and adult, should have an injury prevention coordinator. And I am that person for Connecticut Children's and Hartford Hospital. And we have systems now to help guide our work. We have data systems like the web injury search program at the CDC. We have the National Violent Death Reporting System that combines medical examiner data and police data. And two of our staff, Jay Cochin and Heather Clinton, are embedded in the Department of Public Health and the Office of, of the Medical Examiner to collect and help us analyze data. And we have the National Electronic Injury Surveillance System. 
that tracks problems with consumer products. There has also been, I think, a change in social norms and attitudes. As a young physician assistant in 1979 working at Mount Sinai Hospital, our pediatric ward was filled with so-called accident victims, children who were struck by cars, burned, stabbed, shot by guns, victims of violence, and everybody was calling them accidents. We now know that injuries are not accidents, that they are predictable and the preventable. And we know now that violence is a preventable public problem. And we also have understood the scientific approach to bring data forward. And we have gained knowledge and we've actually reduced injuries. Here's a nice example of the work of the National Injury Surveillance System, NICE. This is a system that's based in a sample of hospital emergency departments, and it quickly identifies consumer products that are resulting in injuries. Now, here's a great game that I used to play when I was a kid called jarts, javelin darts. It's like essentially a horseshoe game, and instead of throwing horseshoes, you throw these oversized darts. And when played correctly, they go into that little circle and you win points. But guess what happened? People would throw them up in the air, they would go 10, 15, 20 feet in the air, and they would come down. And sometimes they would come down and impale people. This is the infant walker, and babies love infant walkers. But they also created injuries and in addition to the electronic surveillance system, we had very astute pediatricians like our own Dr. Banco, who identified this problem and wrote an article about it way back in 1982, the infant walker, a previously unrecognized health hazard. And we have examples of other consumer products that, that result in injuries, like the three-wheeled all-terrain vehicle on the top there. These have powerful engines, a high center of gravity, and guess what happened? They go fast and they tip over and children and adolescents get injured and killed. And now we see issues around electronic cigarettes and the damage it causes to, to pulmonary and lung tissue. Another big accomplishment is we have now new injury professionals. And we have been most fortunate to have two. Dr. Amy Hunter was trained at the West Virginia Injury Control Research Center and Dr. Mitch Doucette trained at the John Hopkins Injury Prevention Research Center. We need these new, bright, energetic scientists to help us understand and solve the complex injury problems that we have. And through the almost 30 years of our center, we've touched the lives of many students. These are not one-hour deals. These are typically semester-long experiences, and we've made contact and taught over 300 students behind the numbers. They're real people, and they're all doing terrific things. We've made some accomplishments in reducing injuries. Specifically, we have effective interventions like graduated driver licensing, impaired driving laws, motorcycle and helmet laws, and these have re 
uh, resulting in reduction in motor vehicle crashes, commercial aviation, residential fires, and child poisoning. But we've had as a field some major disappointments. We have made little progress on reducing firearm injury. We've seen a dramatic increase in opioid poisoning deaths. We've experienced repeals of the 55 mile per hour speed limit. Some states have speed limits 75, maybe even higher. And we've seen repeal of effective motorcycle helmet laws. We experiencing endemic levels of child maltreatment and sexual assault. And we still have people who believe that unintentional injuries are random chance events that they're accidents. We have much work to do. So what is an injury? An injury is, uh, is all about energy. Too much energy results in human tissue damage and that energy can be mechanical energy transfer from a car crash or assault, chemical energy transfer like a poisoning, hot liquids or objects resulting in burns, electrical strikes, radiation energy, or the absence of heat, such as hypothermia or choking and the lack of oxygen. There's a lot of energy that went to deform this car. The average American car weighs about 4,000 pounds. If you're traveling 50, 60 miles an hour and you crash, this is what happens to the car and all that energy is transmitted to the people inside. We have an approach now to solve this problem. This is not rocket science. This is not sequencing the genome. This is the public health approach where you start with a problem and you search for a response. You first describe the problem with good surveillance. You identify risk and protective factors, and then you do something about it. And that's the great thing about this field is being an activist and implementing and evaluating programs and policy. This is a chart that shows the 10 leading causes of death. The blue squares are unintentional injury. The green squares are suicide. The red squares are homicide. And when you look at this and you compare injury and violence to other leading causes of death, you see the magnitude and the frequency of this problem. Today, 665 Americans will die from a preventable injury it's the leading cause of death. And I work and I have the great privilege of working in the emergency department and we see a lot of non-fatal injuries. And all of this costs a lot of money. It's estimated to cost each year about 60, 671 billion with a B dollars. I'm gonna show a series of slides that go back from 2000 to 2017. The top line is all deaths. So this is good news. So this is, uh, in our country, 18 years of data, all deaths have gone down 21%. And within all deaths, non-injury deaths have declined 21%. And injury deaths have gone down among persons 0 to 19, 21%. And if you look at injury death rates by age group, the highest death rates are among infants, followed by adolescents 15 to 19. And if you look at injury death rates by age group and sex, 
for each age group, males which are in blue, females in green, you can see that male injury death rates are highest, are higher for each age group. And injury death rates vary by race and ethnicity. It's highest among American Indians and Alaska Natives, followed by blacks, whites, and then Asian Pacific Islanders. This is directly tied, directly tied to socioeconomic status and poverty. If you equalize all this, these differences go away. I'm now going to show you what's happened with the injury death rates by intent. Again, persons under 20 in the 18-year period, 2000 to 2017. Good news is that unintentional injuries have gone down 36%. Suicide is up 51%. Homicide is down 10%. One of the concerning issues is infant suffocation. So in this 18-year period, over 15,000 babies died, averaging 868 per year. In 2000, 526 infants died from suffocation. And in 2017, that number went up to 1106 representing a 71% increase. And the question is, is this real? Given the fact that SIDS deaths have gone down about half with the back to sleep campaign. And there are scientists that are exploring this. And it may be that coroners and medical examiners are classifying these deaths not as SIDS, but as unintentional infant suffocation. Lambert and colleagues published this paper looking at sleep-related suffocation deaths. They try, wanted to try to get a better understanding of what was happening. And they looked at 250 cases. And in 69 cases, 69% of the cases, the infant was, was died from soft bedding. In, and these babies were typically three months of age. 19% of the infants and they, their average age was two months, were suffered from overlay. And usually it was the mother. And in 12% of the cases, and these babies were average age six months, were wedged between the mattress and the wall. So nurses are terrific. And a very clever nurse came up with this t-shirt to remind parents when you put the baby to bed, that this is the side that should be up. And the American Academy of Pediatrics have developed safe sleep recommendations, specifically instructing parents to place the baby on his or her back on a firm sleep surface, such as a crib or bassinet with a tight fitting sheet, avoid use of soft bedding, etc. Sharing a bedroom with parents, but not the, the same sleeping surface preferably until the baby turns one, but at least for the first six months. And there's been good science that shows room sharing decreases the risk of SIDS by as much as 50%. And of course, avoid baby's exposure to smoke, alcohol, and illicit drugs. Uh, a clear success story was, is a reduction in fall deaths. Again, this is 18 years worth of data. In 2000, 180 children died from a fall, 
and now in 2017, 127, and that represents a 34% decline. Now, how did this happen? Well, there's been less use of infant walkers, and we have stair gates at the top and the bottom of the stairs, and now we inform parents and caregivers to use window guards so children don't fall out of windows. What about drowning deaths? In this 18-year period, 18,000-plus children died, about 1,000 a year. But things are getting better here as well, 36% reduction in drowning deaths. Pool fencing is a proven effective measure to reduce backyard swimming deaths. It provides a barrier. I would imagine most of the people in this auditorium can swim and learned how to swim as a young child. But there are still many populations in our country that have a fear of water and a fear of swimming, and they're at risk for drowning. Life jackets, personal flotation devices work, and 100% close supervision is very helpful in preventing young children from dying in water. A huge success story has been in the area of motor vehicles. And over this, again, 18-year time period, 41,000 children and adolescents died, averaging about 2,300 a year. But you can see the remarkable decline in motor vehicle occupant deaths over this 18-year period. Some of the progress has been, been made with child passenger safety and the effectiveness of car safety seats. And in 1960, it was very common to have parents uh, hold their children on their lap, and we provided education only. And one of the heroes in our field is Robert Sanders, MD, otherwise known as Dr. Seatbelt. And he was a pediatrician, kind of like Dr. Douglas McGilpin. And he kept getting phone calls from the hospital about all his patients that were getting injured in car crashes. So he began a campaign recognizing the value of car seats. And he encouraged people in Tennessee to pass a law in 1978. And by 1985, all states have child safety seat laws. And guess what? They work. Compared with no restraint, fatal injuries are reduced between 58 and 71% for infants and 54 to 59% for children one to four years old. Now, when I was working as a PA examining infants on Bliss 6 at the Hartford Hospital Newborn Nursery, I saw some very interesting things. I saw our nurses, our great nurses, provide instruction to parents on how to bathe the baby, how to feed the baby, how to take care of the, the circumcision if, the, if, the, if it was a male infant. They were saying absolutely nothing about car seats. And I saw the parents struggle with these contraptions, right? How do they put the baby in? So we did a study to look at, to look at what was happening there. And we found a lot of misuse. We, we enrolled 101 mother-infant dyads. 52% of the time, uh, the parents were putting the baby in the car seat incorrectly. 48% of the time, they were putting the seat in the vehicle incorrectly. And astoundingly, 29% of the parents 
put the baby in the seat and the seat in the car, but they didn't fasten the seatbelt. And we wrote this up and published this paper entitled Wishful Thinking, Safe Transportation of Newborns at Hospital Discharge. So we wanted to do something about this. So I went to my friend, Dr. Victor Hersa, who is medical director of the, of the nursery and pediatrics. And I said to him, we gotta, we gotta try to fix this problem. He said, absolutely. So we had no policy. So we, we drafted this policy and we worked with the medical and nursing leadership to have this policy that states to provide appropriate car seat counseling to all parents and caregivers of newborn infants in order to reduce the high rates of misuse and improve the safety of newborns discharge from our maternal newborn unit. Not only do we have a policy, but our injury center have people like Luis Rivera, who is a child pastor safety technician, and it's his job to oversee this whole policy. And guess what? He's now training all the nurses, and the nurses are training the, the parents, and now we have healthy babies going home in, in approved car seats the right way, and that's a really nice thing. Booster seats work. Children ages four to eight using belt positioning booster seats are 45% less likely to be injured than children using belts alone. Seat belts work. They reduce the risk of fatal injury by 45%. In 2016, seat belts saved the lives of about 15,000 people, but not everybody buckles up. About 90% of people buckle up, 10% don't. If everybody buckled up, we'd save even more lives. Teen drivers. This has also been really a nice success story for us. And this chart shows teen motor vehicle deaths by gender. The top line are males. They've gone down 113%. And the green line are teenage girls. And, that, and the teenage death rate has gone down 82%. Why? Because we have graduated driver license. It's this idea of phasing in the driving privilege. Years ago, when you were 16, you'd go with mom and dad to the DMV, you take your vision test, your driver's test, you pay your fee, you had full privilege driving, and that was a recipe for disaster. Now we phase in the driving privilege with uh, a learner's permit, an intermediate license that allows unsupervised driving under certain restrictions like night and passenger, and, and this has been highly effective. Research in US and in Canada has shown that graduated driver licensing laws reduce teen car crashes by 20 to 40% and crash reductions are greater with stronger GDL systems. Our champion is Dr. Brendan Campbell and he was a member of Governor Rell's task force on teen driving safety. He was instrumental in getting these our laws passed in the state and his career is gone on and he's now chair of the Injury Prevention Committee for the American College of Surgeons. And we published our work uh, in, in this, in this uh, journal article. Another success story is drunk driving. This chart shows fatally injured 16 to 20 year olds with a blood alcohol level greater than 0.08 from way back 1982 to 2017. In this time period, there were over 31,000 deaths, averaging about age 65 a year. But you can see the remarkable decline. Now, how did this happen? Mothers against drunk driving. 
I've always been impressed. When you get strong, bright, intelligent women, and you get them mad about something, things change. And that's exactly what Mothers Against Drunk Driving accomplished. These were mothers who lost their sons and daughters in car crashes, and they organized, and they, they became advocates for drunk driving laws, like administrative license suspension. So if I go out and I'm driving drunk, and I get pulled over, my license is gone. Sobriety checkpoints work. They reduce alcohol crashes by 17%. And having a 21-year-old minimum drinking age is also highly effective. Ignition interlock device laws reduce the number of alcohol-impaired drivers and fatal crashes by 16% compared with no interlock laws. So right now, if you're conv convicted of drunk driving, you have to uh, participate in this program. I heard a report the other day that some of our car companies are considering installing these devices in all new cars. Some of the major reasons why car crashes have gone down is changes to our cars, our vehicles. The first generation of cars sought to reduce the impact of crash forces with collapsible steering columns, crumple zones, shatterproof glass, reinforced side beams, seat belts, airbags. We now have cars with collision avoidance systems like backup cameras and multi-directional Wi-Fi to detect potential collisions and warn drivers. We have adaptive headlights that move in the direction in which the car steers. And we have adaptive cruise control to maintain a certain distance between vehicles. This is one of the first generations of, of Google self-driving cars. This is what they look like now. You notice this picture on the bottom. There's no steering wheel. You get in the car and you hit a button, you say, take me home. And you can do whatever you want. You can comb your hair, you can brush your teeth. You have a bowl of cereal. But there are, and, and, and those are good. So you have a self-driving car. You don't have to worry about drow drowsy driving or drunk driving or distracted driving. And right now, the situation is we have about 80% of the software developed, but the, the challenge is developing the remaining technology that will reliably anticipate what other road users will do, like drivers, pedestrians, and cyclists. Say a few words about motorcycle injury. Not a pediatric problem, but something that I've been working on for uh, a big part of my career. We published this paper back in 1992 that looked at um, motorcycle injury and costs in our state. Here's a more recent publication in Connecticut Medicine. <clears throat> motorcycle deaths and death rates have gone up. 55%. We have an effective vaccine. It's called the Motorcycle Helmet Law, Universal Motorcycle Helmet Law. This is a map of our country. The states in green have a Universal Motorcycle Helmet Law. That means all ages, all riders. And there are 19 of those. 28 states, including Connecticut, are in blue. They have what's called partial helmet laws that are tied directly to an age. In our, in our state, if you're under 18, you have to wear a helmet. And then three states have no laws. So guess what? If you have a universal helmet law, almost 100% of motorcycle riders put on a helmet. Deaths go down, traumatic brain injuries go down, okay? You have a partial helmet law or no helmet law, about 50% of riders 
will voluntarily put on a helmet. Guess what happens? We have high death rates and high traumatic brain injury rates. This is one of my colleagues, Krista Green. She's a research associate as part of our center. And what we've tried to do over many, many years is to reenact our partial law to a, a full universal helmet law. And we mobilized, and she was instrumental in helping us mobilize a statewide coalition. We made some progress, but we still do not have a universal helmet law in our state. And we have many deaths and many costs associated with this. This was one of our posters that we would use when we would go down to the state house and try to convince people that this was a good idea. Most people think it's a good idea, except for the riders. There's a small contingent of riders who are threatened by this, and they see this as an assault on their personal liberty and freedom. Let's talk a little bit about pedestrians and bicycles. I know this guy. This is Dr. Donald Hyde. Not only is he a great pediatric surgeon, but he's a terrific mountaineer and bagpiper. And when we started working together in the early 90s, he would take care of injured children all the time as a surgeon. And he would, he called me aside one day, he said, Gary, what's with all these children being hurt uh, as pedestrians? Can we study this problem? So we did, and we looked at death certificates and, and, and police reports, and we published this paper in the Journal of Trauma back in 1901 on child pedestrian injury. In general, pedestrian deaths among children have gone down 34%, and, uh, and our death rates in Connecticut have mirrored that, that issue. Although, as I mentioned recently, there's been an uptick in uh, about 3% uptick in the last year in pedestrian injuries. Bicycle deaths have also come down 67%. Our current approach of pedestrian education programs Teaching children how to cross the street safely is not effective. We need new approaches. Some of the most effective approaches are changes to the roadway, like sidewalks, overpasses, median islands, lowering vehicle speeds with speed bumps. Here's an example of a pedestrian hybrid beacon. You see a mom and a child crossing the street, and the, be the beacon remains dark until a pedestrian activates, and then it flashes to provide a warning to motorists that somebody's crossing the street. Bike lanes aren't perfect. Here's an example of a street level protected bike lane, a conventional bike lane, bike lanes close to street cars and tracks. But there are problems with, with bike lanes. Sometimes you have illegally parked vehicles. The best bike lanes separate the roadway and the bicyclist. We have collision avoidance features that are being built into cars that will alert motorists to, to, pedest to pedestrians and bicyclists, and that, that's very helpful. Electric and hybrid vehicles are, are terrific, but they're quiet, and they've been shown to create some issues and injuries in, in low-speed situations like in supermarket parking lots. Helmets work. Here's an example. Dr. Campbell and his daughter were in a, in a bicycle crash abrasions and broken injuries, no head injuries. We published this work uh, in Bicycle Injury in Connecticut back in 1995. And we lobbied from our data to pass a bicycle helmet law in our state. Currently, if you're under 15, you have to wear a bicycle helmet in our state. And there's been work that shows that the odds of a bicyclist will wear a helmet is four times higher in states that have a law. 
We have people on our staff like Amy Watkins, who's uh, spearheading our work across the state in a campaign called Watch For Me Connecticut, aimed at reducing pedestrian and bicycle injury. And here's a poster from that campaign encouraging people to be visible at night. Drug deaths. This is one of the sad and horrible problems that we're dealing with in our field. Drug overdose deaths have gone up 135%. It's come in three distinct ways. In the 1990s, there was a rise in prescription opioid overdose deaths. In 2010, we saw a rise in heroin over, overdose deaths. In 2013, we now see a rise in synthetic opioids like fentanyls. And that, that pattern is, dis, is displayed here in this chart showing the dramatic rise of opioid deaths and heroin and fentanyl. Children and babies are not spared. In our NICUs, when we have more mothers with opioid use disorder, we're seeing a dramatic increase in neonatal abstinence syndrome. When babies are in the nursery and they cry, they're most often crying for the comfort of their mother or for milk because they're hungry. These babies are crying for heroin. The CDC recommends to treat this and address this issue targeted naloxone distribution. And we begin to treat people in, in jail and emergency departments with medication assistant treatment to curb, curb their cravings and get them started. Another big problem for us has been guns. We looked at this problem back in 1995 and documented the problem in our state. In our country, we rank second for gun deaths, 37,000 in 2016. If you look at gun deaths and gun death rates for all ages, in the last year, we had 39,000 people in our country die from gun deaths, a 32% increase. Most of the firearm deaths are from suicide, 60%, 38% from homicide, 1% unintentional. The risk of gun suicide relates not only to gun owners, but to all household members, particularly for people adolescents. Safe storage. Suicide risk among children, young adults relates to how securely household guns are stored. And people buy guns for a lot of different reasons. Some like to target shoot. Some like to collect. Some people buy guns to protect themselves and for the family. The thinking is, if I have somebody busted into my house, I need a gun that's ready to go. So they keep their gun loaded under their pillow, under their bed in a nightstand. That increases the risk dramatically. If you try to teach young children to stay away from guns, it doesn't work. We now see, unfortunately, mass shootings, mass shootings where four or more people are shot in one time. And this is this year's data from 2019. So far, we've had 331 mass shootings, 
381 people killed, over 1,300 wounded. It's a small, very small part of the gun problem, but it creates an enormous amount of fear and apprehension. This is a quote from Reverend Allen Jr. He oversaw the funerals in Dayton and the Dayton shooting, and this is his quote, the world we live in now is one in which no place is safe, no lives really matter when it comes to violence. Some of the factors that are emerging among mass shooters is a strong sense of grievance, a desire for infamy, copycat, a history of domestic violence, narcissism, access to guns, and male gender. We have effective strategies to reduce gun deaths. They include universal background checks. If I wanted to, after here I get in my car, I can go to a gun show, and I could buy a gun. Same day. We need to close these loopholes. We need to restrict ammunition sales. We need to pass risk warrant and red flag laws that are people that have been deemed as dangerous and concerning. We need to pass assault weapon bans. We have high capacity magazines that can store not one bullet or two or three, but 10, 20, 30 bullets at a time. Bump stocks, if you put that on a semi-automatic semi assault rifle, can change that to an automatic gun. They need to be banned. Ghost guns can be put together in your basement without a serial number. We have community campaigns like ceasefire in Detroit, Baltimore, Chicago, that engage hospitals in the community. They've been shown to work. We need more work on firearm safety storage, firearm research, and smart guns. Smart guns are personalized guns that only the registered owner can fire. And my colleague Kevin Burrup wrote a paper and published this on accelerating the adoption of smart gun technology. The business community has taken note of this problem of guns in our country. And this is a shot of Walmart. And Walmart now is restricting the sale of certain guns and limiting ammunition sales. So summary, our country has many guns and current gun laws that have more gun deaths than other developed nations. We have more guns in homes. We have more homicides, more gun suicides, and more unintentional shootings. And we need to change our gun policy that's focused on guns used in crime and not gun suicide. I'll say a few words about suicide. This is a slide that shows suicide death rates by age. The top line is our adolescents 15 to 19, up 37%. And among adolescents 10 to 14, up 52%. 43% of youth commit suicide with a gun, 44% suffocation. We have some data from the Connecticut School Health Survey about the thinking and behaviors of our kids. Here's one slide that shows in our state in a classroom of 30 high school students, four students seriously considered attempting suicide in the past year, and two students actually attempted suicide in the past year. We have a team of Dr. Steve Rogers, who won our pediatric emergency medicine attending and a research scientist in our center, and Kevin Borup, who are leading our efforts to address this issue, both in the hospital and out in the community. We now are asking 
children over age 10 in our emergency department. These suicide questions. In the past few weeks, have you wished you were dead, et cetera. And this is data from the last seven weeks. The bottom blue line are children who are medical, come in for medical issues. And the orange column are kids that are screening positive, that are here for behavioral health issues. And we found that 6% of our medical patients screen positive in seven weeks. So these are children coming in with headaches, stomach aches, all kinds of problems, and they're screening positive for suicide. This is a great opportunity for us to get these kids some help. We also have huge issues in the, in the community. We have many pediatricians here that refer children to specialists. They send them to a pediatric cardiologist, pediatric pulmonologist. They see the specialist, they get a report back. What we're hearing is that our pediatricians are sending children to, to behavioral health therapists in the community, and it's a black hole. They, they don't get any reports back, so we need to change that. I'll say a few words about child maltreatment. And the data is coming from this report in 2017. And again, fortunately, one of our great new research scientists, Dr. Amy, Amy Hunter, is working on child maltreatment surveillance. And she's working with Dr. Livingston from our SCAN program, Dr. Flores, and others to improve child maltreatment detection and response in the clinical setting. And they are now developing studies to use machine learning techniques combining clinical triage notes with medical billing codes to create an algorithm predictive of child maltreatment. This is what's happened around child abuse deaths in our country in the last few years. In 2017, we had over 1,700 children killed. Most of them were infants. Most of the babies died from neglect, 75%, 41% from physical abuse. And apart from the deaths, our Department of Children and Families report over 8,000 substantiated reports of child maltreatment. Domestic violence is a big risk factor. And we know that IPV in children's homes um, is a huge problem. When men, and it's usually men, are beating their wives or girlfriends, in about half the cases, they're also injuring and harming children. And when you have a little boy who grows up in a home watching daddy beat mommy, when he grows up, he's more likely to be an abuser. And when you have young girls growing up in a home seeing daddy beat mommy, when she's a grown woman, she's more likely to get into an abusive relationship. The American Academy of Pediatrics identified this problem. And they said back in 1998, identifying and intervening on behalf of better women may be one of the most effective means of preventing child abuse. We have a team of scientists that are working with the Department of Children and Families to uh, look at the practice and policy of that department. There's a, a specific program called IPV FAIR, Family Assessment Intervention Response. We're looking at case management, safety planning, trauma-focused clinical interventions, parent education, skill building. Our team members are Dr. Beebe, Dr. DeVitro, Dr. Grasso, and Megan Clough. We're doing work in our emergency department to identify domestic violence. The primary prevention of domestic violence is teaching young people, 
the difference between a healthy and an unhealthy relationship. And Jessica Escobar is out in our high schools doing just that. I'm gonna fi finish with a word about climate change. And this is a chart that shows our planet Earth getting hotter. We are experiencing more frequent and more severe weather, heat and cold waves, cyclones, hurricanes, tornadoes. Right now in the state of the great state of California, there are major wildfires that are destroying homes and people are getting injured and hurt. So in summary, our field has moved forward. We know what works. We have a lot of very difficult, challenging problems, like, like I've mentioned, suicide, guns, opioid epidemic. We have many challenges. But one of the great things for me has been working on this field for, for 30 years and making some progress on all of these issues. Our work is summarized in an article that's at the back of the room on the table there that describes our work over the last 25 years. And I think now it's time for us to take a hike. And I thank you very much, and I'll take any questions. Thank you, Gary. We, we did have our helmet on, so it was, uh, it was a fast ride. And uh, congratulations on all the great work that you and your team have done for so many years, really have managed to change change the lives of so many people. Uh, a lot of work ahead of you, so I want to encourage the, the young people in the back of the room, especially the residents, to get involved as we move forward. So we have about uh, three or four minutes for questions. Begin with Larry. Use the microphone, please. Yes, good morning, and thanks so much, Gary. I'd like to ask about another form of injury prevention, which is very current, uh, which is uh, the vaping and e-cigarettes that you mentioned. And about a year ago, uh, I, I being on Hartford City Council, we introduced uh, raising the tobacco age from 18 to 21. That was relatively easy with the ALA and the AAP and the AHA all behind it. And that was done within a few weeks, a few months. And Hartford was the first city in the state. Other cities followed and then it went statewide from 18 to 21. Right now we see on the news the vaping and e-cigarettes and the controversy is, and I, I'd like to get some advice and help. We, we introduced an ordinance to ban the sale of vaping products and e-cigs, speaking of longer term lung injury, obviously. And some people thought that was, that was too radical a step to bar the sale of such products, not punish the individuals using them, but bar the sale. They thought it was too much of a step and only went to bar uh, flavored uh, additives knowing that those were appealing to the young people. Um, my feeling was to take the bolder step and bar the sale, just as Massachusetts has, of, of some, uh, some um, items which enable inhalation of these dangerous substances. The final word hasn't been said. And that's where some people backed off only to ban the flavors rather than the whole uh, vaping and e-cig mechanism. I, I wonder if there's any opinion and maybe afterwards or now we can get some advice whether to push the, 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 more, the, more, the deeper legislation to ban the parlors and the equipment rather than just the flavors. Because this was a debate just last night where the majority backed away 
from the, the, the deeper step. And it will come up again, and we'll need expert testimony on all sides in regard to e-cigs and vaping. So that's my question and my appeal. Yeah, thanks, for the, thanks for the question. I mean, there's no doubt that we have um, a hazardous consumer product, and I know that there are scientists uh, at, at both the state and national level that are trying to dig deeper and actually determine the exact cause of, of the injury. Um, but, but certainly we know enough, I think, now to mobilize and advocate for restrictions on these devices. So I think, you know, again, this is, this is now a political issue as well as a scientific issue. So we need to mobilize people and, and, and have people's voice heard to, to restrict use of these devices. Thanks for your question. Yes, Dr. McGill. Oh, no, yes. Thanks, uh, Gary, excellent overview. I love the fact that you guys are doing work in the ED for screening. If one screen's positive, what's the next step in that setting in which they're not there for that particular reason? And secondly, what can primary care uh, providers do in the community when they identify something like that uh, but didn't plan for it? Yeah. So uh, the short answer is if you can get children and adolescents to accept therapy, and some will not, some will not want to see a therapist. But if you can get children into therapy, and oftentimes it's not only the child, but it's the family together, um, people can be helped with that. So in, in the ED, when we have people that screen positive, Dr. Rogers is here, please comment if I misstate anything. What we seek to do if somebody screens positive is have a deeper assessment of what happens with that screen. And that'll mean oftentimes have one of our psychiatric social workers talk to the, to the patient, talk to the family, and get a, a deeper understanding of what the issues are, and from there make, make a, a recommendation on whether or not um, outpatient therapy is appropriate. In some cases, I think we've had children screen positive and they actually are transferred to our zone C. So uh, any comments on that? The short answer, this is Steve Rogers. Uh, the short answer is they have a risk assessment, a brief risk assessment that's stratified low, medium, high risk. Uh, and then appropriate resources are identified based on that. A majority of our kids, and we've screened over 4,000 kids in the past eight weeks, um, who have screen positive are actually low risk. Um, it's really just need community-based resources. Uh, so this is an actual achievable it's a, um, process for our outpatient folks as well. Um, and they have resources like EMPS and their local uh, behavioral health therapists. Last question. Last question. It's a two-part question. One of the common is, is that I think if you mentioned, I'd reemphasize follow-up from behavior therapists essentially is non-existent. You don't get communication back from it. It's a very difficult problem. It, in cases where you're prescribing medication, you oftentimes have to make multiple phone calls before anybody calls you back. And, and I think somehow, you know, legislation you got to call the primary doctor back is the only way to happen because it's not happening now and i don't think it's changed in the last you know last four years uh, second question i think is uh, the biggest concern i have with parents now with car seats is there's always the issue when you go to boost a seat but the biggest thing is the recommendation recently from going from front uh rear facing to front facing raise it from one to two 
as a grandparent traveling with young kids, one to two, they much rather be forward than back. It's not a pleasurable ride, and I think itself prevents some issues. Okay, having traveled with twins, it's not a good time. Uh, um, I don't think this, the data there is minuscule to me that it makes a big difference, as long as you're in a good approved car seat with a good anchorage. Your thoughts? Um, well, you know, again, this is, this is one of those tough issues where we have data that shows the effectiveness. Well, he's going small, um, but it, it is measurable and significant. But as you say correctly, I mean, in practice, you have all sorts of issues, right? Uh, like the ones you described. So that's, that's a thorny issue. Uh, you know, I'd like to think that we could, you know, educate people and, and, uh, and get through it and build our, our evidence base so we have not a little bit of evidence, but more to, to convince people like yourself. Well, I want to thank you all for coming, and uh, have a good day.